This is Chapter 69 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we unearth a dark and dirty chapter of New York City's history. Then we'll find out what it's like to have your book be the subject of a comedy skit on national TV. Before Manhattan's Roosevelt Island was home to pricey apartments and Cornell's new tech campus, it was known as Blackwell's Island, and it's where the city hid away the sick and poor in deplorable conditions. Author Stacey Horn explores this living hell in her new book, Damnation Island. She spoke with our Peter Haskell about how she researched this dark episode of New York City's history and how much things have changed since the 19th century. Not a pretty picture you paint of this place. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I've been hearing about uh, Roosevelt Island for years, and I had a vague sense that something terrible had happened there, but I really didn't know when I began researching. I mean, we've all passed the ruins of the smallpox hospital on the southern end of the island, so that gives a hint of the darkness, but... In the beginning of the 20th century, excuse me, the 19th century, the city built a lunatic asylum, a penitentiary, a workhouse, which was also a a penal institution for people convicted of minor crimes, an almshouse for the poor, and then various hospitals to service these populations. And they intended it as a sanctuary. They would send people there, whether they needed healing or reformation if they had committed crimes, and they would go back to the city in better shape than when they sent them. But almost immediately, one by one, every institution just collapsed into abuse and and neglect and underfunding and horribly inhumane conditions. So what kinds of things were happening there? Well, one of the bigger problems for me was it was run by this department. Um, It was like this weird combination. It was called the Department of Public Charities and Correction. So it was three commissioners, the same three men who were responsible for charitable institutions were also overseeing the penal institutions. And so they did things to save money, um, like... uh, taking convicts who had been convicted of crimes and sent to the workhouse and sent them to the lunatic to work as nurses and Which seems like a good idea. (laughs) Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? And it was horrible. I I read this one story, this this one poor woman who had been committed there and one of the convicts, the first night she was there, cornered her in her cell, and it was a cell, shaved off all her hair in order to sell it as a wig. So these things are happening. What was happening with oversight or lack thereof? Well, the thing is, the people that were being sent here were poor people. If a a wealthy family had a member of their family that was suffering from some sort of mental disorder, they didn't go to Blackwell's Island. They were private hospitals for them. And even in the penitentiary, in the workhouse, which should have been democratic, I mean, criminals are criminals regardless if they're wealthy or poor, but the wealthy criminals... If they were arrested at all, they got off with a fine or their cases were dismissed. And only poor people were sent to the penitentiary in the workhouse there. Even the, a warden, I found this warden in an annual port, um, railed against the injustice of this. And wardens, who are not known as the most compassionate of men, talked in his annual report about the fact that only poor people were sent here. And he said, like, I know the affluent also commit crimes, so what's the deal? And in his annual report, he said, it shows to me that the wealthy can evade the law and its punishments. 
Interesting, nearly 200 years later, it seems like we're having a very similar conversation. Yeah, unfortunately, that was like this one of the most discouraging thing was like my book ends in 1895. It was a very positive year. The city was owning up to the mistakes that they had made. They separated the two departments into, you know, one for charity, one for correction. They decided that the penitentiary and the workhouse were so abysmal that they couldn't be fixed. So they bought Rikers Island with the idea that they build brand new state state-of-the-art correctional institutions. But that also immediately went south within within three years. And it's because they they thought the problems were with the buildings, and it wasn't the buildings at all. It's how we run these things and with the criminal justice system in in general. So I had my book in 1895 with them all thinking that they're going to fix all the problems. And so I started researching where we are today with mental health, public health, and correctional institutions. And just I saw one by one that... The biggest difference is now we have plumbing. That's it. In some ways, it's worse. Like I read a report of how uh, teenagers are treated on Rikers Island, and nothing in my research of the 19th century matched the barbarity and cruelty that I read in that report. When people delve into this book, and you, you touched upon it a little bit, What do you want them to understand about what was happening there? I want them to understand, well, one of the things I didn't mention, but one of the big problems of putting these two departments together and then taking all these different groups of people and isolating them on an island away from the rest of us created this association in the public mind that poor people and people suffering from mental disorders are similar to criminals and that they're all one and the same and belong together. Poor people are basically thieves in disguise and the mentally ill are dangerous. And we've taken that attitude and it continues today. We've criminalized being poor. And that's why wealthy people rarely go to prison and poor people go to prison for the most minor offenses. Um, I lost my thought. That's fine. So the Those who don't learn from history are destined to repeat it. What should we take from what happened then, and how do we try to transform what's happening now? Well, there's so many things we can do. Uh, For instance, um, Trump recently mentioned bringing back lunatic asylums. And I write about um, how abusive the lunatic asylum was on Blackwell's Island. And once again, they had started with the best of intentions. They researched um, a, a lunatic asylum that had opened. And I'm, by the way, I'm using lunatic asylum because that was the term Correct, of the day. Right. Uh, they went down to Philadelphia to visit a state-of-the-art lunatic asylum that had been built based on something called moral treatment. Prior to this um, Lunatics were thrown in jail. They were given treatments like bloodletting, and they were put in restraints. Um, and the idea that you could cure them. Yes, by bloodletting <laughs> and other f- barbaric um, forms of what I would call torture. Moral treatment had the very novel and revolutionary idea of let's treat them with compassion and kindness and put them in a positive settings and pleasant settings, and maybe they will heal better this way, which of course did work. And that's how they built the lunatic asylum on Blackwell's Island. It was supposed to 
follow this term of treatment, but they made two big mistakes. They underestimated just how expensive it would be and how many people were going to require treatment. So almost immediately, the lunatic asylum was too crowded. So they started building other um, buildings to put them in, and they one of the, two of them were called the Lodge and the Retreat, which was where they put the most violent inmates. Um, your listeners may be aware of Nellie Bly. She was reported in the 19th century. I was going to get to that. Yes, to she, tell. She feigned mental illness in order to get committed to the lunatic asylum to report about it undercover. And what I learned was her initial intention was to be put in either the lodge or the retreat because they were notorious at the time. But when she got there, she was put in the nicest part of the asylum. And that was so horrible and abusive. People were essentially being killed by the nurses there. She thought, no way am I going to go into the lodge or the retreat. I'd be taking my life in my hands. So she built these terrible, terrible articles that eventually became a book based on the nicest part of the asylum. There are a lot of villains in this story, and there are some good people as well. And Nellie Bly was trying to shine some light. One of the characters that recurs through the book is the Reverend William French. Tell us a little bit about him and what he was doing. He was an Episcopal missionary uh, to the island, and he was assigned there in 1872, and he served there until the second-to-last day of his life. And he was a good man. He wrote annual reports um, based on his work there, and he would he would every day except for uh, Saturday he would work the per, walk the perimeter of the island, going from institution to institution. And he was so trusted on the lunatic asylum that the commissioners gave him a key that would get him into any section of the lunatic asylum. And when there was an investigation later in 1880, when after a year of spectacularly terrible things going wrong, the example I always use is they had a pregnant inmate in 1870. And one night they put her in a straitjacket, threw her into solitary, and then just forgot about her. And she gave birth in solitary alone in a straitjacket. Other women were murdered that year from um, basically their roommates. They The lunatic asylum um, rooms were designed for one woman, but they often put up to four women in each room. And they would lock them in at night. And this is also in the lodge and the retreat with violent roommates. So you'd be locked in at night with three other women who were supposedly dangerous, and you wouldn't be unlocked until the morning. So terrible things happened. Word got out, and the Senate conducted an investigation. And French was subpoenaed to give evidence at this investigation. But the night before, he got a telegram from his superior telling him, if you testify, you're in danger of losing your position. So he showed up in the uh, committee and he said, I-, I want to testify, but this is stopping me. So they subpoenaed the superior, called him in and asked him to explain himself. Like, how could it possibly be Christian to prevent Reverend French from testifying on the behalf of these poor souls. One of the other, and you you touch upon it here, one of the other themes is not just the inhumanity, but really the corruption of the administration of trying to hide things and overlook things and try to save every penny at the expense of the people there. Again, what do you see 
as a similarity between then and now, or is that too harsh? Well, the similarity I see has probably always been true. Um, these men were hired not based on their qualifications. It was based on their political connections. And they held on to these positions like with the tightest, tightest grip because it was extremely powerful. These three men were responsible for all the charitable institutions, all the penal institutions in New York. So I focus on Blackwell's Island because it had most of them. But they were also overseeing all the institutions in Manhattan and all the other islands surrounding the city. So they were they were also responsible for all the hiring and firing. And this is what killed me. Like if a decent um, superintendent wanted to fire a nurse that was abusing the patients, he couldn't do it. He had to appeal to the commissioners who might fire her, might not, depending how useful they thought that nurse was to them. So don't look too closely. <laughs> yeah. They just, they wanted to overlook anything that was bad. They just didn't want to give up a single ounce of power. But whoever does give up power without a battle? Power. That always seems to be a common denominator. What made you want to delve into this subject? I, for whatever reason, I have always been drawn to morbid, dark stories, but in particular, stories of injustice that have been forgotten. Like, all these people, they, they endured th these terrible things. And we're talking thousands of people, like forty to 50,000 people were sent to the island yearly, a thousand of whom would die every year. And who knows? Like, people drive by, you know, Roosevelt Island. People live on Roosevelt Island. And they don't know what happened there. And they should. I feel like I want to speak for all these people. What was involved in the research? This must have been an intensive project, you know, over 50 years of that you're covering going back almost 200 years ago when it started. It was so much fun. <laughs> well, first of all, I a lot of the city records are gone. And my guess is they're gone because nobody wanted the future to know what exactly had happened there. So I had to be creative. But that's the best part. And I read all the annual reports, like all the wardens had to issue annual reports every year. So I read those. And things like I came across one warden who was particularly kind. And he lived in Massachusetts. He oversaw the workhouse, which was one of the penal institutions. So I called the historical society in this town. And I said, by any chance, do you have anything about this man, Reverend William Stocking? And they said, we do. As a matter of fact, we have an unpublished autobiography. And they scanned it and sent it to me. And there was a chapter about running the workhouse that was amazing, this inside personal view of how he felt and things that had happened and things that he had tried to do to make it better. How much time did it take you to do this research? Uh, there was a year of solid research, but then the year that I was writing it, um, it, there was continual research. Like as I would start to work on a section, I'd realize, oh, my God, I need this and this and this. And I'd have to go back to the look into more um, items. Were there people you were able to find who either had some kind of expertise based on their jobs or second generation, third generation, or however many generations had heard stories about this? Because that would seem to be the challenge if you don't have people to talk to. 
I I tracked down some of the descendants of wardens and superintendents. I talked to um, the president of the Roosevelt Island Historical Society and people who had expertise in these populations, um, lower income, public health, um, correctional institutions. But most of it was based on... Just the odd items I could find. Like I came across this one letter in the New York Historical Society from an inmate of a young woman who was in Sing Sing, um, writing to a society lady who was a visitor. Society ladies in the 19th century would go around to the prisons and visit the women and try to inspire them to lead a better life. So this one um, inmate had connected with the society lady, and she wrote her a letter about how she was first sent to the penitentiary on Blackwell's Island. And she was sent there when she was 15 years old for picking a pocket. And it was like, for, I can't remember the amount, but it was a very, very tiny amount. And that judge sent her to the penitentiary for two years. I mean, the normal sentence for something like that would have been 10 days in the workhouse, and he sent her to a, a more substantial institution. Like, this is for people who are convicted of serious crimes short of murder, unless they're a, a woman. Women murders were sometimes sent there. And he sent her there for two years. And I just, I don't know, something about that letter spoke to me. I just related to, you know, being a teenager and going down the wrong path and having really no one to protect you and then getting sent to the penitentiary for two years where it just, she never recovered. She just sunk lower and lower and lower. And you can read cases like this over and over and over today, like people, some kid, you know, committing some minor crime and getting sent to Rikers and it destroys his life. And it happened back then too. It was Blackwell's Island then, it's Roosevelt Island now. When you see Roosevelt Island now, what do you think? Well, now it's pretty. Like, I, when I walked around the perimeter myself to get an idea of what French saw, and also to get an idea of what the prisoners and inmates there saw, because when you're on Roosevelt Island and you look across to Manhattan, it just looks so tantalizingly close, and it's this, like, wonderful city, and here you are stuck in the the worst hell on earth and, and, and heaven is just right across the way. And in fact, I read so many stories of people trying to swim across, but the channel in the East River is very, very strong and most people drowned. The book is Damnation Island. It's been written by Stacey Horn. Stacey, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This week's beach read, Dreams of Falling, is set in the idyllic low country of South Carolina. And despite what you may have heard on a recent late night talk show, it has nothing to do with eels. I recently spoke to the queen of Southern fiction, Karen White, about what the book is really about and why the South is such an appealing setting. Your book drew me in from the very first sentence, which is, I think I am dead. Why don't you tell us a little bit more? You know, I guess ever since reading The Lovely Bones, I've been fascinated with a character who is a main character, but who cannot interact with the other characters. But she's so important to the story that the other characters can't figure things out without her. And, um, you know, and this is, she's, um, she, this, it's a story about very strong women, women. And this is a woman who has struggled a lot through her life and she's at a crisis in her life and she is what's going to bring all the other women in this story together. 
And we're talking about a story that spans three generations and you go back and forth between the present day and then uh, these three friends in the 1950s. What chose you to choose the 1950s as your past time period? Right. Well, the the book is set in um, and South Carolina, small town South Carolina. And my mother grew up in a very small town in Mississippi. She graduated from high school in 1952, and she had four sisters. They all grew up in the 50s. And my grandmother saved every single one of their party dresses in these trunks in the extra bedroom. So as a little girl who loved to dress up, you can only imagine visiting my grandmother's house, opening up those trunks, and then playing dress up, you know, dressing in these gorgeous clothes with the crinolines and the stays and, you know, all of that. And um, looking at these pictures of my mother and my aunts at these parties, um, you know, where there was like, you know, the the swing bands, you know, they used to, my mother loved to dance, you know, when dancing was a real thing with steps. And, um, you know, just watching movies, I was fascinated by the 50s, um, seeing pictures, my dad was a car guy, you know, and seeing pictures of him with his various cars from the 50s with the big fins and everything. I just fell in love with the time period. Um, you know, as I got older, and I learned more about history, you know, I understood there were still problems in, in, in the 50s, you know, we still Still had some social issues that we needed to work out, but the 50s were this idyllic decade between the austerity of the 40s and the craziness of the 60s when we were all about celebrating having saved the world in World War II and, um, you know, we, new, new prosperity. There was hope. There was these wonderful things going on, and I just knew that I'd been born in the wrong decade. Um, and as, as a writer, I get to time travel. I get to pick wherever I want to exist in for a little while, and I picked the 50s. And you mentioned that this novel is set uh, in Georgetown, and you set many of your books in the Deep South, and you do a really wonderful job of capturing the beauty and the history of it. I know I want to plan a trip down there soon. You should. (laughs) (laughs) What drew you to write about this part of the world? Well, this is, um, so Georgetown, South Carolina is part of the low country, which includes Charleston. It's, it's, you know, it's called the low country because it's below sea level. And it just has this distinctive charm, um, you know, the marshes and the old oak trees and the you know, Spanish moss and all of that. And I fell in love with the low country through Pat Conroy's writing. I'd never visited there or, uh, or, or grew up there. And reading Pat Connery introduced me to this beautiful place, this beautiful world. And when my kids were small and we were living in Atlanta, um, our first trip to the low country was Hilton Head. And we'd rented a house on a marsh with this dock that goes way out um, you know, into the marsh. And um, my husband and I walked to the end. It was sunset. And I smelled the pluff mud for the first time, and I fell in love. Um, and I just, I just felt that I had come home. It was a, a really sort of odd feeling. So I wasn't writing then, but when I did start writing, I knew that, of course, um, you know, setting for me is as much of a character as the actual speaking people in my books. So it has to be a place that resonates with me. So, of course, the low country is a place I love to return to again and again. And you really do treat it uh, equal to the characters. That there's, you just impart all this feeling into the setting that you've created. Right, because I, I assume, you know, my I, I become my characters. I'm, I guess, you know, method acting, I guess you can say the same thing with writing. I become my characters. And Larkin, who's the main character, she was raised in Georgetown. She's living in New York City when the when the, when the um, uh, book starts, but she's from Georgetown. And her father tells her, you know, you've got that salt water running through your blood. You know, there's, there's no escaping it. And so I kind of become that character and understand what it is 
that draws her back. Um, and I, I feel it, you know, and, and I think that makes it easier for me to describe for my readers what it is, what this magic is about this place that will bring a person home no matter how, how much they say they don't want to go back. It's like that old cliche about taking someone out of the setting but not being able to take that place out of the person. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I see it. You know, my parents were both raised in small town Mississippi, and I see that in my dad. You know, he was an executive, and we lived all these cool places like London, but he was still that small town southern farming boy, you know, and you just couldn't shake that out of him. And you're talking about how you become your character. So one of the, I guess you could call it a hobby or an interest, is this uh, dream interpretation. Is mm-hmm. that something you're personally interested in or just something you stumbled upon and thought was, oh, I think I'll use that? You know, that. It, it's funny. And, and actually, it was supposed to have a much bigger part of the book. And then I decided that there's already so much going on in this book. We didn't have that need to have that one extra <laughs> element. But I was interested enough in it to keep keep it in there. And it's actually my daughter who... Um, who kind of got me interested. I have bizarre dreams that I've tried, you know, I've gone online to try to analyze and they're just, they're just too weird. There's no, um, but my daughter would always try to analyze them for me to try to make sense of them because they were so weird. And um, she, she never could, but it was just, you know, the things that she would discover and would share with me. And I'm like, you know, that really makes a lot of sense. You know, if you're, if you're dreaming about being pursued or, um, you know, how you can uh, um, uh, relate that to what's going on in your life, like with your career or whatever. And, and I think there's a, I mean, Carl Jung was all about, you know, dreams and uh, Sigmund Freud was all about dreams. And um, I, I totally, I totally believe that. So I was really interested in how there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of help out there with, you know, if you have a recurring dreams, you know, definitely check it out because I think that your subconscious is trying to tell you something. I've spoken to a lot of authors who've told me that some of their stories or, or a character in particular have come to them in dreams. Has that ever been your experience? I so wish that would happen to me. <laughs> that would make life so much easier. Sadly, no. Um, um, you know, writing makes me sleep really well. I really sleep like a dead person because I think just writing, it just, it wears me out. And I think my brain is just too tired. Um, but it's funny too, because my subconscious, which is where the dreams come from, um, it always, because when I start a book, I don't know how it's going to end, but it's like my subconscious does. Because when I get towards the end and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know how this is going to end. It's, it's like I'm on a need-to-know basis with my subconscious, and it will, it will, you know, I'll just be thinking about the story, and the solution will come to me, but it's, it's always in waking hours, sadly. I wish I could just wake <laughs> up and like, oh, oh, now it's going to end now, great. You know, it makes me work for it. <laughs> well, uh, you know what? Sometimes the, the, that's what you need, right? I know. You know, as long as it works, that's all, that, that's all that matters. So I have to ask you, have you seen the Fred Armisen bit? Of course I have. Oh, my God. So for those Did people who don't know, it's it, it was a bit about judging books by their cover, and they happened to pick Dreams of Falling. And as silly and off the mark he was, uh, that kind of exposure must be great for an author. It, it was it was amazing. I mean, they, they, they showed my, the cover of my book about for five solid minutes, you know, on national TV. And, you know, and to hear Fred Armisen, who I adore, say my name like multiple times was like the coolest thing ever. 
the only thing cooler would be to actually be on the show. But, you know, that's okay. I'll wait. <laughs> so you had no idea that this was coming? No, I don't think my publicist did either. We're not even sure how they got the book. I understand Seth Meyers' mom is a big uh, reader of women's fiction, and I don't know if she's a fan or not. Um, but I don't know if you saw the cover mock-up that my publisher did, uh, showing Dreams of Falling, the cover, but they changed it and putting put in Fred's face and Seth's face and an eel. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> It's, it's on my Facebook page. It's pretty darn funny. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's hysterical. And I have just one other question for you being like a New Yorker through and through. Explain to me what shag dancing is. Oh, my gosh. Y'all don't know what. That's right. Okay. So the shag. There's actually a movie called Shag with Phoebe Cates that came out, I want to say early 90s. It's one of my favorite movies. It's actually set in the 60s in Myrtle Beach. Shag is the state dance of South Carolina. And it came about in the late 50s. So um, there's, there's no shag dancing in the earlier part of this book that takes place in the 50s, um, only in the later part of the book in the 2010, um, because it kind of came out what, what, was, what was termed at the time black music, because that was the new sound that was coming out of South Carolina and the South. And it was, you know, the white kids were, were dying to dance to this music, but their parents weren't. Le- it was sort of like this illegal kind of thing. And they would have to go to those clubs on the other side of town to listen to this gorgeous music that, you know, eventually became soul and rock and roll and was really the beginning of this huge music movement. But this was the dance that evolved from that new music and it's still i mean they play it you know there's festivals all over south carolina there you know in clubs and things like that it was um and and you need a you need a vid, uh, go to youtube and just just uh search for shag dancing their legs look like rubber it's like it's it's uh you know man and woman you're always touching by hand um and they sell fast festivals and competitions all over the place and it i i don't know how to dance it because my husband doesn't dance <laughs> but i've got to i've got to do it cuz it just looks like so much fun and um i will that's on my bucket list on my list after i hang up the phone with you is look up those the dancing on YouTube, and then check out your yes. Facebook page for that mock-up cover. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. So, and that'll make your day, I promise you. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, great. So we've been talking to Karen White. The new book is Dreams of Falling. This was a really fun interview. Thank you for taking some time to talk to us. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books, you no doubt saw that we were at the annual convention of thriller writers known as Thriller Fest last week. And if you're not already following us, what are you waiting for? While we were there, we spoke with a few authors like international bestseller Peter James, Sheena Kamal, and Lori Rader Day. We had a ton of fun. Thank you to everyone for coming by and talking to us. You can check out those videos at youtube.com slash WCBS880 under the Author Talks playlist. And that should hold you over until next time when we feature a book that celebrates the role of local libraries.